Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark Stafford and his wife, Marie, who are the founders of Parrots International. Now, one of the reasons I became interested in them and what they're doing and what the organization is doing is that parrots are dear to my heart. I love parrots. And their team and themselves are dedicated to conserving endangered parrot species and improving the welfare of both companion parrots and parrots in the wild. What I also love about them is they're nonpartisan, they're above eco-politics, and they work cooperatively with people in these conservation efforts around the world for the benefit of birds. They were referred to me by somebody I love and trust very much. I really want you to welcome them with a warm heart. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mark and Marie Stafford to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, the first thing is you're doing so many unusual things. One is you're doing Dharma together. You're working collaboratively on this wonderful calling to help the birds. And I think that that's already unusual, where a husband and wife team can come together, any people that are together, the way you're together to do what you're doing. The other thing that I think was also very interesting is that not only do you do symposiums and all of these projects, but you have a species database and information registry on your site at parrotsinternational.org. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Well, what we've, we've tried to do is bring photos and videos from field, from the conservation projects we work with, and have them available on our website so that people can, can get an idea of what these what these these endangered parrots are all about, the habitat they live in, and the, the pressures that are exerted on them, and what the possible solutions may be to help bring some of these species back from the brink of extinction. I think it's interesting to note how many are not only extinct, but extinct in the wild, critically endangered, endangered, vulnerable, near-threatened, and all these distinctions that you make with all these birds. How do you get those stats? The stats are actually created by um, by BirdLife International. They create what's called their, their red list, which which rates birds on on the basis of how many breeding pair are left in the wild. And the rating system itself is done by this international team at BirdLife International, and they rate from from extinct to extinct in the wild, down through uh, critically endangered, endangered, and vulnerable and least concerned. And that's, that's, that is their standardized rating system. And that's used by conservation uh, workers and projects to determine where and how funds could be most effectively used for each of the species. Marie, you've taken a lot of the photos on the site of these parrots. Yeah. And, and obviously, you're a wonderful photographer do you travel a lot to do this? Have you both traveled together a lot, or do you sometimes have to split up and you travel alone, or how does it work? I think there was one time that we didn't travel together because I got very ill. But other than that, we travel together and take pictures at the same time. A lot of times Mark is taking video, and I'm shooting with the camera. So we have both pictures, you know. Don't you fall in love with these birds while you're shooting them? We really do, and we... we we first fell in love because we started out with pet birds, and then we wanted to see what our birds were all about, and we found out how endangered some of them were, 
like the hyacinth macaw, we found out that there was more hyacinth macaws when we had our first macaw than there were in the wild. Yeah, you know, they were more in captivity than there were in the wild. And then we, so we went to visit those projects, and we became very good friends with the woman, Neva Gedges. Dr. Gedges has tripled the population in, a, in the short time that she's been working with them, you know, and, and she's done amazing things to help these birds survive. How has the habitat and weather changes, including the air, change what's left of the birds, of the parrots? The greatest pressures on the parrot are habitat change. Not, not so much climate change at this point, because parrots are relatively mobile as long as their habitat is, is intact. But it's, it's mainly uh, the pressures, uh, for most of them, it's habitat loss and the pressures from illegal poaching or removal of birds from the wild. Uh, there's other parrots where it, it may be an introduced predator that was not part of their natural habitat as they, as they evolved with their natural history. But in general, the, the two largest um, pressures on parrots are, are habitat loss and, um, and what we would call poaching or removal from the wild for the pet trade. Now, Mark, I know that you're a dentist, and so there's this whole other side of your life. And Marie, I know that you work with Mark in the practice. How did you get into being involved with parrots? I know you talked, Marie, about having personal parrots is the lead into it, but you guys are deep in this. Oh, yeah, we're so deep in it. It was about 20 years ago when we when we ended up with our first bird, and we didn't seek out to have a bird. We were just walking to lunch one day, and a little bird shop opened up in our neighborhood near work, and we decided we only had 15 minutes for lunch on most days back then, and so we would visit the birds, and we ended up with one of these little birds, and we thought he was so amazing, and then we ended up with another little bird, and, and another bird. We found that they all had different personalities, and then we went to figure out, we started traveling and figured out where these birds were from, how they lived, what they should be eating, and we were just so shocked at what we found, that people were still killing them, they were shooting them with slingshots, some of them areas were so poor that people would eat them. I mean, all these different things that we never imagined. So we started deciding that we would that we would try to do something for the parrots, especially the birds that were endangered. So we focused on that, and then from that we ran into all kinds of other type of birds that needed help. So basically, if we didn't have pet birds in the beginning, we probably would have never got into the birds in the wild. You know, so many people who love birds, like all of us, would never necessarily feel that they could empower them directly the way both of you are. And the thing is that many of us, like, I love birds, but I wouldn't know the first thing of how to go about empowering them. So how did you figure that out? Well, I'd say the, the, the biggest step to understanding what's going on is to, is to take the leap and, and visit a, a, a working conservation project, a field project. So that's, that was our first step is to visit a project and, uh, and, we were sold at that point. We thought that 
parrot conservation was 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 amazing. The people that are working in the field are essentially dedicating their lives to to live in uh, many of them to live in in forced poverty almost in 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 areas with with no electricity, no no hot water, uh, no decent facilities. But they're these people are have educated themselves. They have PhDs and they have gone in the field. And they're they're actually donating their entire lives to save these birds. So for us, for Marie and I, those people are our heroes. All we try to do is help them do what they they've dedicated their life to. So we our task has been to find good, effective parrot conservation projects and support them, and then identify parrots in need of help and try to develop projects. And that's been our that's been our main focus. That's one of our our I would say our main mission statement. But our other mission statement is education and um, and the welfare of companion parrot birds. But education of of people to understand what the what they can or can't do. And so I think that's to answer your question. The first step is to to actually see if it's possible to visit parrots in the wild and then see what you could possibly do to help out. Um, largely, the, what these people need, the, the field projects need most is funding. So we spend a lot of our time trying to um, deliver presentations at bird clubs and symposiums and conferences and, and give these projects exposure. In terms of the projects, so you spend a lot of your time raising money and looking at where it needs to be directed and where you can amass it to direct to these projects. Can you talk about a couple of the projects? Oh yeah, we've got uh, we're, we've been quite very involved in over a dozen projects. Um, we have some that are are longer and, been, and we've been working with longer than others. Uh, Marie's already mentioned the Hyacinth Macaw Project, which right. is Projeto Arara Azul in the Pantanal of Brazil. And that is would be a, a gold standard of a, of a parrot conservation project where um, Dr. Neva Gedges has, again, devoted her life and her field team has, has devoted their, their, their lives to the successful work with this particular parrot, the Hyacinth Macaw. And it's, it's a very majestic macaw, a very, very large macaw. And she's, as Marie mentioned, she's done amazing work, largely working with the people. And we found that most of the projects involve working with the local people. If the local people don't understand that they have a, a, a rare and majestic creature, that, that they, are, they are responsible for their stewardship, then they really don't, they don't, get on board they don't understand why this parrot could be could be important to them and so for example one of our projects is we call the sticks macaw school project and the sticks macaw the last sticks macaw became extinct in the wild in october of 2000 wow yeah and it was it had been in the wild as a lone parrot for about almost 18 years that bird is now only found in captivity, and there's a, uh, a consortium of breeders that are breeding the last 87 Sticks macaws with the sole purpose to reintroduce them back into their habitat. So 
Parrots International has been working at the habitat to to get the capacity building and get and educate the local population on why this parrot would be so important to them. So, for example, we've adopted this school of, of school for children up to about. 13 to 14 years old, which are con- they're considered adults at that point in this very poor area of, the, of Brazil. And we have, we're, we're essentially telling them that the school and the money that is funneled into their little tiny community is a gift from the Spix Macaw. Even though the Spix Macaw doesn't exist, the Spix Macaw wants to exist back with them and so we're teaching them how valuable this this particular bird is to them and their heritage. How beautiful. And Parrots International also went in and with the purchase of land in that area where the last six macaw was seen in the wild. And, and um, there's a farm there that was purchased called Gangora Farm that has 400 hectares which equals about a thousand acres, and we're trying to reserve different portions of land to set aside for future reintroductions. That's that's the hope of the organizations um, that are that are trying to save these parrots. That someday that they they'd be back in the wild. So we started somewhere, and and we thought land and the land where the last bird was seen would be a good place to start. That's beautiful. So you're really doing a whole systems approach to solving this problem and to conserving the beautiful wildlife of these birds. Right. Other organizations have jumped in as well and, and purchased other areas that are attached to this farm. So we're, we're going to be able to have a, a good piece of land there and try to make um, a good place to reintroduce the bird. Yeah, we're up to about 6,000 acres. At this wow. Reserved That's incredible. Habitat for habitat restoration. I would imagine that in this calling, when you go to these different countries and you're working with the local peoples, that other things may come along that you didn't plan on. Share a little bit about that. Yeah, many things have come along that we never thought we were going to get involved with. We have. We never thought we would be working so closely with the community, with the children. We. We've visited schools that had no pencils, no papers. We bought them desks. We've bought supplies. We've helped rebuild a schoolhouse. We've helped pay for a little boy's surgery. He was not able to sleep at night. He was not able to breathe. He needed an operation. Parrots International made a made a large donation along with a couple other organizations, and we, we got this child to have his medical treatment. I mean, there's many, many different things. There's the transportation that takes these children to school. We were paying for someone in a pickup truck to take them to school to get them hot lunches. We've, we've um, had a new restroom put in. They've never had utility. They've never had hot and cold water and a restroom. So there's a lot of different things that we never thought we would be working with. There's museums, there's pictures, there's all kinds of different different things that that we've come in contact with because of the parrots. So it's been a fun journey. Even with our own parrots, we didn't know what to expect when we first got our own parrots. And 
you know, it's been a it's been a pleasant pleasant journey. It sounds like you have a calling because it sounds like whatever shows up in your sphere that there's a calling to correct. It sounds like you're correcting it or you're building what you can along the way. Yeah, it it and it's good. It's it it gives us a lot of pleasure to be able to put in a little money. Like I say, the the South American countries are the place places that we can reach just because of our location. We can't go to Australia, we can't go to Africa and hold down our job, make money and be able to donate. So we kind of concentrate on South and Central America in that our money can go further and we can make the most difference. It's not that we don't like the other birds. We have other birds that are cockatoos and things that we're so interested in, but we just can't be everywhere. So there's people that that do that and help us out and come to the symposium and they explain about what's happening in those countries. So they share that information with us too. Beautiful. Is it hard to be here in California knowing this whole other side of your lives? Uh, no, it, work, it works out fine. We spend some, some years, we'll be oh, over six weeks in the field, which is, which is quite a bit of, that's a, essentially every spare moment, every vacation that we, time that we can possibly spare, we, we spend in the field with the projects. And, um, and when we're not, in the, we're not in the field with the projects, then we're, we're spending most of our evenings in spare time working with, uh, with Parrots International fundraising or to, to create the annual symposiums or working with, with, with donors. It's, it's, it's busy, but it's, you know, I, I feel that we're, we're being effective both in the United States and in the field. How is your volunteer base and what are your plans for the growth of that base? And you know how some people can have too few volunteers and then other organizations, they have a lot more than they planned on, but they don't know how to utilize them properly. Where does Parrots International stand right now? We could use more volunteers. That's for sure. <laughs> we could always use more volunteers, yeah. both in, in helping with, with the work that's done in the United States, which would be the education work and the, the annual symposiums, and, and presentations, and also in the in the uh, the volunteer projects in the field, and we have we have a lot of great volunteers that have taken their vacations, gone into the field into Chile or or, or Costa Rica or Brazil, and worked with the projects for sometimes three two to three weeks, sometimes more. So yeah, we are. International is an all-volunteer organization. We have no we have no paid staff, so we depend completely on volunteers. Do you notice that certain countries are more receptive to your work? You work with a lot of countries here. You're in Costa Rica. You're in Brazil. You're in Peru. You're in the Bahamas, right? Correct. And you're in the Amazon. Um, in the Amazon itself, no. We're, we we. Bonaire, you're in Bonaire in Argentina, right? Um, we haven't spent much time in Argentina. We've been in Chile, okay, and very close to Argentina. With our one of our projects was is about thirty minutes from the Argentine border, but uh, not in Argentina okay. itself. We have another project that we're working with in uh, Iguazu Falls in Brazil, which is on the border with Argentina, and they. The two of them share this huge, gigantic waterfall, second largest waterfall in the world.
uh, larger than Niagara. And just on the Brazilian side, we're working with a project to reintroduce blue and gold macaws and um, green wing macaws back into the national park. So, yes, those birds will be in Argentina as much time as they'll be spending in Brazil because all they're doing is going back and forth across the river. But we're working with the group in in Brazil itself. I also see you're in Bolivia too, right? Yes, we've spent quite a bit of time in Bolivia with those projects. I think that was one of our first projects in, in That we Bolivia. supported, yes, oh. that's true. The blue-throated macaw project and the red-fronted macaw project, right? Yeah, we've spent most of our time that we've been involved in Bolivia has been with the Blue-Throated Macaw Project, and we have um, uh, several projects there. One is supporting uh, the Armonia Laurel Park Foundation project for uh, nest boxes in the wild. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a second project where we're working with the indigenous population to try to... uh, teach them and convince them not to use wild macaw feathers in their headdresses. The local Indians actually build headdresses, much like American Indian headdresses, except they're made out of macaw tail feathers. And one headdress would have somewhere between, would take 10 to 40 macaws to make one headdress. And they're taking these these birds out of the wild. And they have processions during their their, um, their religious um, celebrations where there'll be hundreds of men wearing these headdresses in parades. So we've worked with uh, creating a, a contest for alternative alternatives to macaw feathers for the creation of these headdresses and to, um, to encourage the use of uh, these alternative headdress materials. And, um, and that's, been, that's been a very successful project also. That's very interesting. I think that that is such an interesting and challenging effort that you're talking about in the indigenous realm. How did they respond to you about this, though? Well, they they, they will only respond. I'm sorry, I'm taking, Marie could easily answer this question. They, they, they will only respond in a positive way if there's value to them. If they can see a value in that particular project or that bird. Otherwise, they respond very poorly to having first world country people go in and tell them how they should run their life. That's, that's absurd from anybody's standpoint. That would, that's, that's rude and, and unacceptable. So what we do is try to develop a project and let them see that the project has value to them. So when we did the the alternative headdress contest, the first thing was to get everybody's attention. So we, we, had, we had three prizes. First prize was $500. Second prize was $400. Third prize was, I think, $300, which isn't a lot of money, except the average monthly income in this particular area of, of Bolivia is less than $100 per month. So a or $500 prize was essentially almost a half a year of income. So that was that was a big attention getter. Once we had the once the project that particular headdress project it, it was was uh, culminated, then we developed a second project, an offshoot of that, where we were, we teach the local people how to make artificial macaw feathers, 
and they are amazing. The talent that they've got now to make these artificial feathers that we've we had one of the headdresses was at a, a large conservation um, conference in Spain. It was brought over there as as for show and as a gift, and we had researchers totally outraged and running up to this this large headdress demanding to know who could have possibly made this out of macaw tail feathers. And why these we are, would support them. <laughs> yes, and these are, these are people that all they do with their life is work with macaws and trying to save them. And they didn't realize until they were inches away from it that these were all artificial feathers. How interesting. So, so now these people in Bolivia have, have figured it's very expensive to buy these, these macaw tail feathers to make their headdresses. So now we've created a a, uh, a substitute, a living, yeah, a substitute, a living where certain communities can create income by making artificial feathers and selling them to the other communities. So that then becomes the way that we direct them away from natural poor parrots. How do they get the tail feathers from the macaws? Unfortunately, they 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 shoot them. Are you kidding? Yeah, that's that's the only way they have. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that's why I say one headdress represents the the death of ten to forty macaws. So this was this. It's huge. Yeah, it's a very this is a this is a that's a big deal in this particular area. And I imagine you work through translators. Yes, and the local people, the the project leaders, are all all very fluent in in the, the local language. So. The, the person that's the, the lead investigator for the Blue-Throated Macaw Project, it was raised in that particular department. They call it, We call them states. They call them departments, and it's in the Benny Department of Bolivia. So that's, that would be one project where reaching the people is key to saving the parrot. Another example of that is our Lear's Macaw Project. It's a, we call it the Lear's Macaw Corn Subsea Project. And the Lear's Macaws is one of the of the large blue macaws. It's a little bit smaller than the hyacinth macaw, which is the largest of all the macaws, the largest parrot, flying parrot. And the Lear's macaw was down to about 150 birds total in the wild. And their largest, their biggest pressure was poaching. Some were poached, but the biggest pressure on this particular bird was what I call death by farmer, where they, they would come down out of their breeding cliffs and land on these little indigent farmers' cornfields and eat their corn. And these cornfields were small, like an acre. And that was what that that was the livelihood of these farmers. They have no no electricity, no irrigation, they have no tractors. Everything is done with an ox pulling a plow. And it's almost almost uh, agriculture out of the say sixteenth century. Interesting. So, so when these macaws would come down and eat the farmers' fields, they were actually robbing the food out of their family's mouth. So they would shoot the birds. So we created a, a way to make the macaws valuable to these these indigent corn farmers, and we we essentially pay them to allow the birds to feed in their corn fields. And then at the end of the season, the growing season, our our, our field technician goes in and goes to each one of their plots, evaluates how much damage the parrots have caused. Some none. Some have extreme damage, and we rate them on. On, on four levels, none, some, quite a bit, bad, and they get reimbursed by the, by the unit area of the size of their of their 
their little farm in hectares, they get reimbursed either four sacks of corn, three sacks of corn, two sacks of corn, or no sacks of corn per unit area. And we deliver that corn to the farmers. So now the parrots have become an asset rather than a liability because even if the parrots feed on their corn, they know that they're going to get reimbursed in essentially in full, and it's worth it to them then. They can sit back, watch the birds, and instead of going out and harvesting all that corn, it gets delivered to them on their front door in sacks. And, and we started the program in 2005 when there was about 150 Lear's macaws left in the wild. There's now over 1,000 in the wild. That's and, beautiful. And each year we've been dispersing a, about 25 to 30 tons of corn. So a very, very large amount of corn. I hope it's not GMO corn. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> and corn is relatively inexpensive as well. Wow. You're solving all kinds of problems on a whole systems level to make this work. Yes, but as I mentioned, many times it's the main thing, which was was a surprise to us, actually, when we got really got involved and realized that the key to many of these problems is is working with the local people. That if, if you don't work with the local people, the, the project will, will fail. You're rainmakers, both of you. <laughs> That's what you're doing. You know, it was so sad the first time we went over to, to assess the Lear's corn to see what the damage was and everything. We were told by some of the farmers that they would keep their kids home from school so that they could run around the the um, field and scare away the birds. So these poor children were not even attending school because they were trying to scare off, they were trying to be human scarecrows, you know, to scare off the parrots. So this this is working out pretty well. It's It's a temporary solution, but it's the only solution we have right now. So until somebody can think of something that'll work for long term. Who has inspired both of you in this area? And maybe you can start with that, Marie. Oh, I just fell in love with... We have three hyacinth macaws of our own. So I think uh, Neva Gedge's project inspired me to see how organized she was and what a difference she made. And just putting up nest boxes so that the birds have places to reproduce. And she works in an area that's pretty protected it's it's a it's it's a resort as well part of the place where she works it's um in the pantanel and she's just done wonderful things so i think she probably was the main person that showed us that this could be done and she started about in 1990 with her project and she's she's made a great difference there's a lot of people that have made great differences but I would say with the bird that she's working with, it's the largest parrot in the world and the most majestic and beautiful parrot in the world um, that she's done wonders for it and made and put it on the map. So everybody knows. There's more birds now in the wild than there are in captivity, and that's wonderful. That's great. I live in the San Gabriel Mountains near Pasadena, and there are thousands of parrots that fly over my home every day. <laughs> right. Amazons. We've yeah. been there. We've taken pictures. Where are they from? 
everybody has a story, you know, a pet shop, you know, they got loose from a pet shop that burned down or they, you know, they, everyone has a story. Well, it must have been a coup then, a bird coup because... You they- know, but there's so <laughs> many and there's so many different types of birds. You know, there's Conyers and Amazons and all kinds of birds and they all get together and they all roost in the same areas. And- well, there's a lot of action overhead every morning yeah, and I love it. That's I, great. I totally love it. Mark, what about you? I know that you feel the same as Marie about who she's talking about, but is there any other people that you'd like to mention? Well, you yeah. know, each yeah. <laughs> each project has a hero and or many heroes. And so it it's hard for me to pick any particular person. Um uh, an, another person that's been that has we've grown very close to that that is one of my heroes is Dr. Yara Barros, and she's been working with the Spix macaw in the field for years and the Lear's macaw. Um, in the Puerto Rican parrot recovery program, there's there's an entire team of people that get up in the morning at 3:30 in the morning and trudge through mud and rain uphill to get to the top of the mountain to sit in a blind all day and guard the few little nests that are left in the wild. Wow. Watch to see if a chick happens to fall out of the nest, then they go running as fast as they can through the forest to pick it up and and save it before a mongoose can find it and then bring it back and put it, make sure it's healthy and get it back into its nest the next day. And and they come back in the middle of the night by the time they're done. And these people do it every day, all day, every day they do this. People like Dr. Tom White and Fet Feliz, and, and they, they're just amazing. I mean, I, Marie, and I were, Marie and I were invited to go to, uh, we were given an award by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the U.S. Capitol in the, in the LBJ room. And they, they flew us there and gave us uh, an award for the work we were doing to help support the government program, the Puerto Rican Parrot Recovery Program. And there were was, there was several people there, but when, when I stood up to accept the award, my, my bottom line was I didn't deserve anything. It was these, these heroes in the field that are making this, their lives to try to save this bird. They're the people that deserve the awards. And that's how I feel. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe, and I will do everything I can to support these people that are trying to make a difference. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of true earth stewardship where you have people on the ground, you have people right there, they're interacting, they're involved, and they're connected. And somehow, both of you have been able to harness this. It's beautiful. Mark, maybe you should mention how Yara has educated the kids to watch out for poachers. And when we went there in a pickup truck, a bright red pickup truck, they mistook us for poachers, and this is in an area where the project had not been active for years. These are kids that had grown up with the project. Yeah, we were we had we were in, going into the field, into the Spix macaw uh, habitat. The Spix is gone. It, it, it had been gone for a while, and this really shows how important it is to reach the local community and the children, especially the children. So we, we, to get into the field, we had to drive, leave very early. We, we drove through it was one small little village, dirt roads, three or four mud kind of homes, adobe mud homes. We had to drive through before daylight. 
we got way back on this. wasn't even a road anymore. It was more like of a goat track, and we got out and we and then we got in 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 the shade. And we were waiting for the, the the local parrots to to arrive. The local parrots that we we're hoping in in the future will help teach the sticks macaws how to survive in the wild when they're re-released. And um, so we were, we, we were there, and it was about 10 o'clock in the morning when, um, when we, we, we were in the middle of nowhere and we saw these figures walking over, way, way over by where we had parked our pickup truck. And then they, they came down through the bushes, exactly the track that we had taken, and then when they went back up the riverbank and came back down behind this tree, and we, we felt like we were being stalked. And then they just kind of disappeared, and we didn't know where they were. And it's just Marie and I and Yara out in the middle of nowhere. And um, so it was a little unnerving. And then in the in the late afternoon, we got back in the truck. We were driving back all the way back. It took us two hours to get back to this little place that we were staying in. And um, as we were driving through the same little village, all the all the people ran out. <clears throat> And stood in the middle of the road. We realized they were children, and these these were these were the figures that had tracked us on foot in 98 degree weather. They had tracked us all the way down, and they when the car came back, they ran out and got the adults because they thought we were poachers. God bless them, and God bless the work you're doing. That is really moving. And, and it, they are the result. These are the children that. That are taught at the Spix Macaw School, so it it and these are the children that will be young adults when the Spix Macaws reintroduced into their their neighborhood into their habitat. So it's that was very inspiring to see that these that these little kids had had totally digested the conservation method me- message. It's profound. You know who would love the work that both of you are doing? The late Anita Roddick would so have loved to hear about your work. Do you know who she is? No, I don't. She was the founder of The Body Shop. Oh, okay. International. And she worked all over the world with indigenous people and set up a remarkable model for doing business based on compassion of selling products that were not tested on animals, uh, did not use animal testing for cosmetics. But she was totally about what you do the way that she was, the way that she worked with people. And she would have really loved your work. Her husband's still alive. I think Gordon would love your work too. Well, I'm so moved by what you're doing. Is there anything else that you both would like to share with us? Let's see. Uh, Parrots International Symposium. Once a year we put together a, a, it's now the, the largest annual parrot conservation conference. And it's, it's, moves around. It's been in Los Angeles, the Southern California area several times. Next year, it will be in Miami, Florida. Well, this year, actually, in June of 2001, it'll be in Miami. 2011? 2011. There you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> Otherwise, we June. would be at a space audit. <laughs> yeah. There you go. June of 2011. And um, the information is on our website for the symposium, which is pisymposium.org. What kind of people come to this? Describe the different kinds of people that will be there. Very broad. We have we have people coming from conservation projects in third world countries, from and then people that researchers and P 
PhD people and donors from the UK, Denmark, United States, Canada, Qatar, South Africa. It's it's really the the people that come are very diverse, very very essentially a worldwide audience. We and have veterinarians that have continuing education credits there. Yeah, and and parrot enthusiasts, people that have their own pet parrots in their home and they want to know more about their, what their parrot and what's being done to save it in the wild. So it's, it's a, a, a really fun group to be with because everybody is so diverse, but they all have a common, very common, strong passion, and that's the parrots. And that, that symposium is, is always two days. That would be one thing I'd like to mention is that someone that is interested in learning more and meeting people that are actually working in the projects and, and possibly making a bond and finding a, a project that they, that they would be passionate about or want to support or want to visit, then the Parrot International Symposium is, an, is really an ideal uh, venue for that. Mark and Marie, it's been such a pleasure to have you on, and I'm so moved by the work that you're doing. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, listening to, and learning from Dr. Mark Stafford and his wife, Marie, the founders of Parrots International. You can reach them by going to parrotsinternational.org, and we invite you to participate if you love parrots and want to get involved, that you consider that, and thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you, Kim. It's been great. It's rainmaking time.